This morning I'd like to talk about the love of God. I'd like to get also a full picture, not maybe not full, but a fuller picture of the Lord, who He is, what He does. I want to briefly talk about us, who we are, what we were before God came into our lives. And to do that, I want to start out with the scripture of 1 John 4.19. And you notice we start out with that and we'll end up with that. 1 John 4.19, which simply says that we love God because he first loved us. Obviously, this tells us that God loves us. It tells us that we love him. The important thing that I want to look at this morning is the sequence of events. God loved us first. And why did that have to happen? Why did God have to love us first in order for us to love him? That's what we want to talk about. And that's what 1 John 4.19 points to. To really get a full understanding of this, we need to go back to creation and see what really has transpired over time. And we all know as we go through Genesis that God is the creator of all things, heaven and earth, and he created man upright. And that's what Ecclesiastes 7.29 tells us, that God created man upright. And we know that anyway because Scripture tells us that man and God communed together in the Garden of Eden. They talked together, and they were together in the garden. And then something happened. And we all know what happened. It was a devastating time. Probably in mankind, the most devastating thing that ever happened to us. But man fell. And what do we mean by that? He was disobedient. And many people think that's a trivial thing, that he just disobeyed once. But you know, you can remember what James said. James said that... Even if you disobey the least of the law, you're guilty of them all. And that's what happened to Adam. And that's what happened to us. As we go on down the list of the scriptures, in Romans 5.12, we find that through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and death spread to all men. That's what happened on that terrible day. And it was a historical day that this happened to us. Uh, Many times the fall of Adam is made reference to in Scripture. You know, in 1 Kings uh, 8.46, and that's listed on the board too, this was in Solomon's uh, prayer of dedication. And in that prayer, and I just pulled out one little point here. He said, for there's no one who does not sin. Everybody sins. The most condemning scripture to us is Romans 3, verse 9 through 18. Let me quote just a few things there. Actually, Paul was talking, or actually quoting uh, two Psalms. He was quoting Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. So it's not new. It wasn't a new idea that Paul brought up. But he said in verse 11, chapter 3 of Romans, 
there's none who understands. They've all turned aside. They have all together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Verse 18. There is no fear of God in their eyes. This was very condemning. What we're looking at is a description of man, what we call the natural man, who has not had Christ in his heart. This is the natural man. This is what hap- This is who you and I are before we're converted. Jeremiah 17.9 describes it this way. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That's pretty harsh. We don't think of ourselves as being desperately wicked. But what we're comparing it to is God's standards. What does he require of us? So we look at at this condition of man, and what condition is he in before Christ? 1 Corinthians 2.14 tells us very plainly, The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit, of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. The natural man without Christ cannot discern spiritual things. Romans 3 says, No one seeks God. Now, what we're, what we're talking about is the love of God. Notice that we keep coming back to the fact that God loved us first, and we've already described what we were before God loved us, or before we were converted. Romans 8, 7. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. He is dead. He is dead. That's what uh, Ephesians 2, 1 tells us, that we are dead spiritually. I'll come back to that in a moment. We can briefly look at what God's requirements are at this point in Leviticus 11:44 and 45 and in 1 Peter 1:15 it says be holy for I am holy. Another version of it says be perfect for I am perfect. Now why is this so? The main reason for that is that you and I nor no one else can enter in before a sovereign God, a holy God, in a sinful manner. God does not co-inhabit with sin. If you go back to the Old Testament, you know, in the wilderness, what they used to do is take a goat, the priest would take a goat, lay his hand on the head of the goat, and symbolically put sin on the goat, thus the term scapegoat, what did they do? They sending out into the wilderness to separate sin from the camp so God would inhabit the camp. Well, you have the same principle here. That man in a desperate situation that he is in, and yet because of that, he cannot enter in before a holy and sovereign God. For Samuel 2.2 tells us that no one's holy. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin, and you've heard this, is death. <clears throat> As we turn over to Ephesians 2.1, it 
it tells us that we are dead in trespasses and sin. That's what natural man is in a state of death, spiritual death. Now, we could compare this to a physical death, like Lazarus. When Lazarus died, and could that physical corpse have the ability to come back to life? Could a corpse raise himself up from the dead? Obviously, the answer is no. We were spiritually dead. Are we capable of bringing ourselves up to a spiritual life? Ourselves? In ourselves? Scripture tells us no. But it also tells us how we are become spiritually alive. We are spiritually dead, Ephesians 2.1. Keep in mind what Romans says of, uh, of us, that we do not seek God. We don't do any good. Now, don't get me wrong. There's, we do good things from the civic point of view. And we should. We are created for good works. So I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the good that is required for salvation. We do not do meritorious things for salvation. God does that. And that's what we want to point at. Because of our terrible situation, what did Jesus say in John 3.3? 3? Unless you're born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. This is why you need to be and I need to be born again. We were spiritually dead, so we need to be born again. That's what Christ said. We need that. <clears throat> the natural man cannot enter in before God on his own merits. Now, something else that's not too encouraging is that can we change ourselves? Can we make our spiritual corpse come to life? Scripture says no. In Jeremiah 13.23, it says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots? Can they do that on their own? Then may you also do good who are accustomed to do evil. If the leopard could change the spots, then maybe we could change ourselves, bring ourselves back up to life spiritually. That is a terrible picture, and that's what started in the fall. It's a sin virus, if you will, that's passed on from generation to generation to generation. This is why Jesus had to be conceived by the Holy Spirit, because that sin virus would have been passed on to him had he not been conceived by the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> so what's the good news? I've been telling you the bad news. The good news is that God takes the initiative. It is God who takes the initiative. It is God who provides. He provides what is needed for us to enter in before him, a holy and sovereign God. To start out on this, and you, you see this scripture on football games, TV, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's usually all that you hear, but there's more to it. That whoever believes 
in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The key to there is whoever believes. It's there, but do you believe it? Do you seek it? Scripture says if we don't. You know, what I'm doing here, these aren't my ideas. I'm telling you what Scripture says. Uh, So God provides. He takes the initiative. Uh, He provides his own begotten son. Christ lived the perfect life. He kept the law. Matthew 5.17 said he didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. And indeed he did. This was a very difficult thing for you and me. If you look at chapter 5 in Matthew, it explains in depth what the law was all about. Two good examples of how uh, stringent the law is. And that is, it's the law of the heart. Because it said that if you commit adultery, even in your heart, in your mind, you've condemned, you're condemned for it. If you have evil thoughts about your brother without good cause, it's the same as murder. You can check it out, chapter 5. That's how intense, how stringent God's law is. You have to keep that. It's true that you and I probably have not murdered. We haven't committed physical adultery. But in our hearts, we probably have. And that's the perfect life that Christ lived for us. So he lived the perfect life, and Christ paid the debt. Sin is a debt. You've probably heard all this before, but it's good to review. For God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might, what? Become the righteousness of God in him. What we're seeing here is that we don't have the righteousness to enter in before a sovereign, holy God. But Christ is providing that. He paid the debt. The cross represents mercy, and it also represents God's wrath. This is what we deserve, and this is what God has done for us. So, God's mercy and care for us continues. As we look at Matthew 2, verses 4 through 6. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were, what, dead in trespasses. A lot of times we read these scriptures and we kind of pass over that, but we were dead in trespasses when his love was poured out upon us. It continues, and it said, it made us alive. We were dead. It's God who made us alive, together with Christ. And then it says, by grace you have been saved. And raised up together and made us, he made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. Very explicit. If we look at it, study it, ponder it, you can see that we are saved by grace, not of things that we do. Here again, I'm not condemning good works. We need to do good works. We were created for good works, mainly for the glory of God. 
Our good works is for his glory. <clears throat> I might inject here is what happens if natural man does not accept Christ. What if your heart is not circumcised? And we can go ahead and you see John 3.16 in the football game, but you don't see John 3.18 or John 3.36. So John 3.18 says, He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. So unless you're born again, you're already condemned according to Scripture. Because he has not believed in the only begotten Son of God. That's 3.18. 3.36 says, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So we're getting the full picture of God. He's love. God is love. But there's another part here. That he has a standard, a very stringent standard for it to be met because we are sinners. We have lost that through the fall. And that has to be regained. God takes the initiative. It's he who takes the initiative. <clears throat> God continues in his mercy as we read scripture. Look at Titus 3, verse 4 through 7. Very explicit. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared, not by the work of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us, through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, which he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been, what, justified, by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. He poured the Holy Spirit out on us abundantly through Christ Jesus. That's not all he did. Remember what I said in John 3.16, that whoever believed. Also remember what I said in Romans 3. No one believes. No one seeks. But God takes the initiative. And John John's chapter 6 tells us all about this. And what this scripture says, it's hard for us to accept sometimes. Not only for us, but it was hard then. And let me illustrate. As we look at John 6, verse 37 through 39, Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will know means cast out. All that the Father gives me. John 6.44 no one, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up the last day. No one comes to Christ unless the Father draws him. That's, that's, that's hard. It's hard now. It was hard then. Uh, <clears throat> look at John 6.60. Therefore, many of his disciples, when he heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? 
he goes on in 665 and he says, and he's, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by the Father. <clears throat> From that time on, <clears throat> many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. They couldn't accept that. That God has taken the initiative. It is God who is drawing ourselves to the salvation that he has provided. That is incredible, I think. A lot of people would say, that isn't fair. Let me say this. God does not treat anyone unjustly. Everybody is treated in a just manner. Let me illustrate. If we have a timeline, say we go like this, and starting out here in creation, that spells creation. (laughs) And in this time, as I've already said, that man and God communed with one another. You know, they were getting along fine in where? The Garden of, of Eden. Of course, the Garden of Eden is when God met man. And that's always been God's uh, desire to be with his people. The tabernacle, the meeting tent, uh, <clears throat> the promised land where he could meet with his people. And now, of course, we have the Holy Spirit within us. But continuing on here, <clears throat> at one time, man fell. And we'll depict that as this vertical line falling down. You have a level of righteousness up here, and that righteousness was lost because of Adam. Going back to Romans 5.12, you know, sin entered the world. That's where we're at. This is where natural man is today. The timeline continues. It continues on, but we have a different righteousness that we're living in now. The natural man is down here at this level of righteousness. As our timeline continues, we could mark where we were born physically. We, you know, we all have a birthday. But we also probably could mark, at least some people can, when we were born again spiritually. You might say we had two birthdays, a physical birthday and a spiritual birthday. You can continue on, and we come to the physical death. And we all are facing that. Scripture tells us that you could go on into eternity, and you may have, what, a second death. So if you're born twice, you'll die once. If you die, if you're born once, then you die twice. You die physically and you die spiritually. Now when we die, if natural man has Christ in his heart, we could depict his travel in this matter. We're going to go up, you know, and you know where we're going. We're going to heaven. That's an oversimplification of it, but Basically, this is what we're saying. If you are not born again, 
we go down. And you know where that is. If we go up, that's mercy. That's grace. If we go down, that's justice. People say, that's not fair. Well, God told Moses he'd be merciful to whom he'd be merciful. <clears throat> I, I can't explain that, but this is what Scripture tells us, that no person is treated unjustly by God. Everybody is treated in a just manner. You have mercy. This is because of God's active or activity. We get justice basically because he didn't do anything, you know. But the, the gospel is open to everybody. Anybody and everybody can have the gospel. It's there. It's available. And God does not put his hand down and say, no, you can't have it. But he does draw some, at least John 6.44, to himself. Some he doesn't. And they get justice. The rest of us gets mercy and grace according to Scripture. These aren't my ideas, and that, this is the way I'm looking. That's why I got all the Scriptures listed there. Um, and that's, that's a hard saying. And it was a hard saying during the time of Jesus, for many have left him at that time also. So with that, as we're up here, we inherit the righteousness of Christ, the perfect life. In Colossians 3.3, where Paul says, we have died and we are hidden in Christ. If you will, you could say that if God, this be kind of a metaphor, you look down and he sees Al Stallard. He doesn't see the righteousness of Al Stallard. He sees the righteousness of Christ. Because I believe and trust God. So we have benefits, needless to say. But there are things uh, that we need to do. Some of the benefits I might mention, and there are many, but Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. That we may come boldly. Keep in mind, contrast that with in the Old Testament when the priests went into the Holy of Holies, they didn't go in boldly. There was fear. And they had to, they had to sacrifice to cover their own lives. And they went in once a year. We can go in as individuals with Christ boldly anytime, any place. We can do it if we're fat, thin, skinny, old, young, whatever. We can enter boldly into the throne of grace when we need it. That's what Scripture says. Hebrews 10.19 says, Therefore, brethren, 
having boldness to enter through the holiness by what? The blood of Christ. Christ is our focus. Ephesians 2.18, Paul was talking about the Jews and the Greeks. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So, what else are we to do? And the interesting thing, and the, and the scripture that's often overlooked a little bit, I think, is John 13.34. You know, <clears throat> we know that we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves, and we do well if we would. But John 13.14, this is Jesus speaking, he says, I got a new commandment for you. This is new. That you love one another as I love you. That's the new commandment. You know, we do well to love our neighbor as ourselves, but the bar is risen. We love our neighbor as Christ loved us. And this isn't the only place it's made reference. As we start reading the New Testament, we'll find out Christ is the standard. In Colossians 3.12, you are to forgive as Christ forgives you. In Ephesians 5, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Christ is our focus. Christ is our standard. And that's what we need to focus in on. So, we come back to 1 John 4.19. We love God because he first loved us. He provides. He took the initiative. Nobody down here in mankind history got together and said, I make a motion that Jesus comes down and save us all in favor, raise your right hand. No one has ever done that. God takes the initiative. God gave us his son who fulfilled all of the law for himself and for us. He paid the debt. And then he drew himself, uh, drew us to himself. What an incredible God we have. That he does all these things. And we are greatly blessed by it. I would open up. I don't know if you have questions or comments. Uh, well, why don't we have a word of prayer then? Our Heavenly Father, we just pause before you, Lord, to praise your holy name, to thank you for the incredible blessing in Christ. We thank you, Father, for your word and your truth. We thank you for your spirit that convicts us of our sin and enlightens our hearts and our minds. We thank you, Father, that Indeed, you are a God of love. And we come before you as sinners, but also as believers in the incredible love that you poured out upon us through your Holy Spirit. Thank you for this time that we have, for your word, and for your spirit to be with us. For it's in Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.